We've all heard some great lawyer jokes. Trust us, we've heard them, all of them. But without sounding too adversarial, lawyers are humans too. In fact, that's the main theme of this podcast. Welcome to The Human Lawyer, the time and place where we have conversations with lawyers focusing on the intersection of the existential and the practical. Jim Buxton is the most well-known member of the Porter Gallup chain gang. He's certainly the most passionate, at least that's our guest. To know Jim is to know unbridled passion, whether it's going all out for an office seasonal sweater party or berating a ref for a bad spot. Passion never sleeps. In life, Jim, Jim knows Charleston before it was cool and everyone else did. Um, a lifer who left, but I just learned that may be wrong. Uh, and he came back. Uh, there really is something in the low country water. When he left, he went to Princeton, a place renowned for its smart, approachable humans formed in part by eating clubs, which leads to the most important question, what eating club were you a part of? And a couple of follow-ups, what must the world know about an eating club? And is there anything that we cannot know? Um, ever the connector and amplifier, Jim's pedigree is never known, whether it's perhaps his old Charleston roots, which again, might be wrong, or his Ivy League pedigree. Uh, to whom does he owe that approachability? Welcome to the Human Lawyer Podcast, Jim. Thanks, Kevin. Pleasure to be with you. Uh, well, I got to unpack a lot from that intro. Um, you make me look better than I am. Well, look, <laughs> we can... say on, the, on the chain gang piece, I'm the box man on the chains. And and uh, I, I really don't berate the rest, but I do like to educate them from time to time about the give and take of some of their calls. That's It's all a negotiation. <laughs> which uh, lends itself quite nicely to your to a corporate practice. Uh, I think, uh, and one thing I learned uh, from your colleague, Brian, is your oldest son, I think is like a fairly good long snapper, no? He's he's coming along. It's a, um, you know, we've, sometimes people don't understand their own genealogy and, uh, but I was a long snapper too. And it was one of those things where when I was playing, it was, it was more out of default. They needed somebody to do it. And, and now it's become this sort of highly specialized area. I think there's something like 37 long snappers in the NFL, which people do their math. That means some teams carry two. Uh, but they actually, they're colleges that, that give scholarships for that. For for my son, um, we're actually getting right after this to head down to uh, Florida for an instructional camp for him on a weekend when most of his friends might be going snow skiing or, you know, doing some other kind of fun project in, um, in the area. But uh, he's, he's, he's smarter than I am. Uh, he's more athletic than I am. And like any of your kids, you want them to be better than you are. And he's, um, for, for us, it's about supplementing his, his person rather than being the tip of spear of what he does. So it's fun, but it's a rare skill to hit a target 14 yards behind you upside down at high velocity consistently. So someone who's uh, incredibly ignorant about long snapping other than be a, being a vociferous fan of the game and seeing a bad snap, and then you sort of realize that the long snapper sucks. Um, what does he do to practice? Like, does he like snap it into a net at home? Like, or does he just go to the Porter Gal, get his specialist with him so he can, you know, be on point? So I'll, I'll do it in the backyard with him. We had a, a long a while ago. I have another son who who is in and out of lacrosse, and he's back in now. And I think he's excited because he's he's a little younger and he's starting to develop. 
Uh, so we had a lacrosse goal with the actual uh, Matt goalie. So he actually has the stick out, you know, his gloves out and stick out like that. And that's a pretty good target for when I can't be there. Um, it's always helps to have someone do a live snap, but we have a little PVC pipe setup we've done too with a target that's basically the same kind of target that uh, uh, the Coles kicking, punting, and long snapping camps has. Um, we got it from actually, uh, I think I have maybe less time than I do some money now, barely, but so I ordered one from a family, father, son, who's, uh, whose kid's actually going to be playing, he's going to be the long snapper on scholarship at Missouri next year. So I told him, I said, look, you, I hope you get very, very few opportunities against every other team in the SEC and as many as possible against South Carolina. <laughs> there you go. Uh, what? Uh, so then we, you were telling me this during our chat before we got started. I had assumed, wrongly, just based on your name, the last your last name Buxton. That, that is a very um, Charleston famous name from my perspective. Like when I was when I lived in Charleston, I uh, I associated that wow. name with uh, people who had been in Charleston for a while. And so, uh, tell me where I'm wrong, or tell me tell me your family's connection to um, Charleston or the Low Country area. Well, uh, so my father is probably the most responsible for that. Um, he and his brother both were doctors here in town, but my uncle George, his brother was an anesthesiologist and my father was a surgeon and, uh, you know, he pretty amazing guy. I mean, that's, that was my comic book superhero growing up was my dad. I hope it is for most people. And I'm trying to do that for my boys, but the jury's still out on that one. Uh, but you know, he was a, he was a young doctor. He had come out of, um, serving in the Navy. He, is, he did a residency at Roosevelt Hospital after coming out of Johns Hopkins, um, which he chose over the Green Bay Packers coming out of uh, college in 1950. So back then, drafts were run a little differently and they didn't pay like they do now. So I think he chose the right team. Um, but he came to Charleston and had a, a small practice here um, in you know, Roper Hospital, uh, was his long-standing hospital here in Charleston. Um and he, he's known for a lot of things. There's one that um, that a lot of people he never talked about, but it, it, it's come up over time. But he was the first doctor to treat an African-American patient at Ripper Hospital. And um, initially, uh, he lost his practice over that with a fellows that he was with. And um, but I think as the being on the right side of history, that came back to him in spades. And, and that was basically the, you know, his philosophy on life was to be able to hold a conversation with anyone, no matter their station in life. I know that sounds kitschy, but it's true. Um, and, and so I, you know, where that affects me is, is, uh, I try to, um, just find something interesting about people whenever I talk to them, how I've done it to you before, but you just, there's a way to connect. And, and so he had an innate ability to do that, but he did it through his practice and serving, I mean, I, there can't be every third person in this community that um, I run into says they knew him or that they were a patient of his. He, he's been gone for 20 years. So, you know, when I hear nurses stories or whatnot, um, old school doctor, you know, he had three specialties, which I don't know many doctors that have more than one now. 
But um, that, so he did good work. And the other is he had a lot of kids and so did his brother because they're 21 in my generation. So, you know, maybe that's some marketing, uh, but we're everywhere. So you can't swing a cat from a church steeple in Charleston and not hit one member of the Buxton family. <laughs> well, perhaps an ode to your dad and then an ode to you. Because this is too random to be random. Uh, I'm not sure I believe in coincidences anymore, but at any rate, I'm recording this podcast from a colleague of yours that you introduced me to. His name is Rick McDermott. You connected me to Rick McDermott in 2011 or 12, as I was trying to matriculate my way into Charlotte. Um, and Rick and I have stayed in touch. And, uh, you know, I'm at a place now where I work from home primarily. Rick's at a place now where he left the place where you knew him, Alston Bird, and now has this very vibrant IP practice that he has himself. He bought a nice office condo in a very vibrant part of Charlotte. Uh, and he lets me squat in his office every now and then uh, just because I need to get out. <laughs> uh, very much attributed to you in a very random way. Uh, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't really thinking that those dots would connect here, but uh, uh, very appreciative of that connection because while there's never been like a direct nexus really between anything that we've done professionally, although we've tried, uh, it's been great to know him. So yeah, cheers to your dad and then to you. Well, I, you know, <laughs> I appreciate that. You know, um, I, I, when you mentioned Rick's name, I remember the last time I probably actually spent, a, you know, some kind of significant time with him when I was in Charlotte. It's been a long time, maybe 15 years. But um, I think it was he was I was with him and I was with uh, maybe Ben Plune from that office. And it was probably outside of a Waffle House. And he was really intent on making sure we understood the new release by Dave Matthews, The Space Between. And so we're, <laughs> we were blasting that song. And, you know, I, I, I got it. I, and without Rick's help, I wouldn't really understand the true, you know, existential meanings of the song. But it was it was, it was good. And, uh, Rick's great. He, you know, uh, and Alston Bird was always good to me, too. Um, I was so fortunate to work there and coming out of Atlanta and uh trying to keep the theme of meeting as many people as possible. I was the one summer associate that asked if I could go to the other offices during the summer. So I got, I went to Washington and then I went to, uh, to, to Charlotte and that's where I met Rick and, um, and Ben, some of those guys. And, and I love my Atlanta friends, but I think if I had to do it all over again, I probably would have started the Charlotte office. It's a good group of people. So that's, um, and I always, I try to, you know, as you get older, you, Sometimes there's relationships then or whatnot, but I know if Rick McDermott called me today, I'd pick up that phone right away. Same with anyone I worked with back in Atlanta. Yeah. I think that inverse would be true. Having I share your name every now and again. He always speaks fondly of, of you. Let's talk Princeton. Because Princeton is like, it's magnetic. Uh, I only know that. Or I'm only feel comfortable talking, saying that because, um, my cousin and her husband both went to Princeton, and I don't want to. I don't want to disparage it like this because this could be a disparaging. This could be interpreted in a disparaging way. Um, but there's an old saying about people that go to Notre Dame, like they'll tell you they went to Notre Dame, but somewhat like Prince, in a different way, Princeton. You'll know a Princeton person in some ways by seeing them because they're like super smart but like super fun. 
and, and they're not like uh, they're not like more perhaps a uh, a more straight edge version of an IOU person. And so I'm just curious about how the fabric of that individual is created through the Princeton experience. That's a big question. You know, I, I I'm almost 50 years old, and sometimes I wake up and think, did I really did I really go to school there? You know, you, you, you uh, it's a magical place. Um, I think a lot of people would feel that way about their institution. Um, it's small. And one thing that makes it unique is, say, for a couple of folks who may have been professor's kids, most people don't live there. So it's a common place for people to gather. And that's a big deal for Princeton. Um, I'd probably go back to Fred Hargadon, who was the dean of admissions. Uh, back when I was coming through, he's passed away just a few years ago. But that that admissions department does incredible work. Um, I, you know, regardless of what's going on in the world today, um, and people always fear like, well, you know, the, the liberal elite and the Ivy League institutions, they're, they're a great you know, whipping post for a lot of people's populism, uh, no matter what side you're on. But if, you know, I, I like to fancy myself a moderate and, you know, going back to what I said earlier about just finding interesting things about people in my freshman class, there are 48 countries represented. I've never been to 48 countries. There's a chance for me to experience the world through people. And, and so if you, if you go into the experience like that, um, and my father said one thing, he said, everyone here is your friend unless you consent for them not to be. And that was a, something I've always remembered. And I've told, told my children now, you know, I had some interesting experiences because people knew I was from the South. And, and uh, so there were some stereotypes put on me, maybe some true, but you know, mostly not. Um, but it was uh, to me, it was like every day you'd meet somebody from, it could be California, it could be Ghana, it could be Sweden, New Zealand, you know, North Carolina, uh, even someone here from South Carolina, we have six in our class and you know, for a place that have people from all over the world, you talk about connections. One fellow, uh, one fellow is named Rich Moore. He practices up at uh, Williams of Conley in D.C. He was a quarterback for Barnwell High School. And uh, we played football together at Princeton. But he, his dad, uh, Tim Moore, would coach a school called Blackville Hilda. Now, not many people know about Blackville Hilda. But back in the 80s, they were dominant. You think about, like, uh, how dominant Oregon was with scoring points and just mowing everybody down. They did that for 10 years. And the one team they lost to in the playoffs was Porter Gout, which was uh, my brother played on that team. I was too young, but I remember just, I'd never seen, it's a class A football game. We're not talking like Dorman. We're not talking, you know, Spring Valley. We're talking about class A, like maybe one stoplight in the town. And there were 5,000 people at that football game. So, you know, when I got to Princeton, <laughs> you know, and actually went to uh, Richmore's house, his dad knew exactly who I was. I don't even start. And it was, you know, so you have everything from, you know, meeting people from Asia and West Africa to Barnwell, South Carolina. And it was just an amazing job the admissions department does of pulling people who are, I would say, probably they're more entrepreneurial than the average bear. And that doesn't just mean business. I mean, it's everything from just, I'll, I'll back up. People always say, well, Princeton, huh? I was like, well, what did you learn at Princeton? So 
I've, I've got a pretty good stock response. I learned I learned one manual skill, which is how to tie a bow tie. That usually gets people rolling. The other is it, it really, in all seriousness, it taught me how to be insatiable about learning. And, and so, you know, there's this real um, psychosis that Princeton grads develop, which is the longer you're there, the more you love it. And then the, the longer you're away from it, it's exponential. And you always are uh, a little bit saddened by the fact that you didn't take advantage of everything it had to offer you because you truly had the world at your fingertips. So as, as, <laughs> there's, a, <laughs> there's a great level or two, which is that as good as you might think you are, there's somebody better. And at Princeton, there's always somebody better. You know, there's somebody better at math. There's somebody better at sports or somebody. And the thing is, you just learn to live in that tension and of being like, you know, I could be better than I am. And not in a way that's competitive or a way that's something else, because we still get together on reunions. People I haven't seen in a long time. And they just, they swim among us. Uh, they have good personalities, but they generally have a little bit of humility. Now, you tell a Harvard grad that, and they'll just, they'll shake their head at it, right? But I like to joke with my Harvard friends. Because I say, you know, they say they went to Harvard, and you'll know in the first 10 seconds. And and I said, that's near Tufts, right? That's like in that Boston. And then, and then you see the crimson. And now you know why they're called the crimson. The red just starts to rise. And it's, I'm kidding. Yeah, I love it. I love I'd it. say Dart, Dartmouth's a lot like Princeton, too. I think those are two, you know, it, for Princeton's, um, it's not in a big city, but it's, it, you know, it's, it's in New Jersey. But really, it's in a, it's truly in an ivory tower setting. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not, it's somewhat bucolic. Dartmouth's very bucolic. But I think just having a little sense of humor and maybe a little bit of self-efficacy is typically what you'll find. Um, but if you start talking about Princeton, be prepared because people start talking. We'll talk about basketball team, football team. You know, I like to remind my uh, partner who went to school with you, Clemson's got three national championships and only 25 more and they'll have as many as Princeton. <laughs> And we have more Heisman than you do too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> it makes sense. Uh, we set the floor on Heisman. Uh, um, so, you know, I tell you what, I still do. Um, I, I actually have two this year. I'm doing three this year. Every year since I graduated, I, they have a, something called the Princeton Alumni Schools Committee, and alums all over the world volunteer to interview students that apply so that, you know, at least have access to an alum. So that every kid in the world that applies has that opportunity. I don't care if you're in Vanuatu or, you know, Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, but it's hard. It's an amazing volunteer uh, commitment because there, there are thousands of people that do it. So it's, we call it going back. It's like the reunions for Princeton, but the giving back has the highest uh, annual giving of any alumni in any college on the planet. It's been as high as 63% per year. You know, as low as maybe probably like 50s in the 50s, but there's no one, no one that comes close. And so I get to interview these kids. At, you know, it, it, what's really great is I really feel like, you know, I won the lottery by going there. Um, I hope I, I hope I make them proud with what I do with my life. Uh, I don't have any pressure on my kids to go there. I want them to chart their own path. I'd love it if they went, but I told them I, I have no expectations of them to do that. It's impossible to get in there. It just is. But when I meet these kids and interview them, every one of them, they could fill five classes. Every kid that I meet is inherently more qualified than I was to go there. They just, 
the students today, they're so far ahead of where we were. But that's what's really interesting is in Princeton, we'll take one of those kids and then just just spin them into another orbit. And that's that's what's uh, unique about that place, at least from my perspective. I mean, it was going to South Carolina for law school. Um, I had a lot more fun, I guess. You know, <laughs> I probably wasn't, wasn't the best student there. I did okay, but I knew why I wanted to go there, right? I mean, I, I, teach, I treat it like a vocational school. But it was a lot different experience. Um, just a just a different setting. Yeah, I think you said something uh, about your interviews with those kids. Like, hopefully, they're proud of like the what you do. And I would say, definitely be proud of the way you do it. Um, I think like the what of being a lawyer. I feel like I'm projecting, but sometimes it can be a, sort of uninteresting. Uh, but I feel like the way that you do it and the way that you connect and sort of tying those dots back to your dad, that's like, that's the glue feels like. Um, but I don't want to, given that time is a scarce resource, I don't want to blow past the opportunity to understand more about an eating club. <laughs> so, yeah. So Yeah. That's a, well, I could tell you, but then we have to delete this. Well, we, can, we can stop the recording. <laughs> so I was in a, uh, yeah, so there, there, there's the concept of eating clubs at Princeton and they're co-ed. So um, Princeton really is not set up for Greek life. For one, you can't really, it's hard to get a house there. It's just so expensive. There are, are Greek organizations. I actually was part of one that, I don't know if it's still there or not. I think it's kind of, it may be gone, but Pi Gap Alpha had a chapter there, but it was more of a service fraternity. Um and, and, and the university really wasn't a big fan of, of Greek life. They didn't really promote it. They actually didn't have the greatest love for eating clubs either. Um, there were some, you know, hazing and drinking incidents that went on like any other college, right? But uh, the, the the eating clubs are for the upper classes when I was there. Those were your dining options. So you had some independent dining options, but they were really kind of few and far between. And it was a legacy system of the upperclassmen having a place to eat. Um, juniors and seniors. So you would go through like the end of in the first freshman, sophomore years, you'd be in residence halls. There were five when I was there, I think six or seven now. The school's expanded a little bit. And, and just on numbers, I mean, they're, they're, when I was there, there are 4,400 people in the school. So now I think they're, they're up to about maybe 6,000. Um, so it's a small school. If you think about the level it competes at on Division One sports, it's pretty, pretty unique. No scholarship. But the eating clubs, um, so I was in one called University Cottage Club. And so that you might recognize some names that went through there, but James Baker, one of them, F. Scott Fitzgerald, <clears throat> Frank Carlucci, uh, Dick Cashmire, that's our Heisman Trophy winner. Um, you know, so there, there have been all kinds of interesting folks that have come through there. A lot of, a lot of you know, political figures, athletic figures, you name it. The the, and there are a lot of Southerners, actually. That was kind of where most of the Southerners were in that one, although we um, we, we did have folks from the North in California. We actually had a great snow football game one time in 94. They, they were just Every week there was about a foot of snow that came in. And the the Southerners would play – it's the Southerners and Texas versus the North and California. So we kind of <laughs> – they were sort of their own nations. Right, for sure. And, uh, so – they challenged the, the Southerners that we're going to play you guys in football. Y'all think you're really good at football. Yeah. The SEC and ACC, I'll keep chirping a bunch of big 10 and PAC 12 people. And 
So we got out there and you couldn't see from, I mean, four feet in front of you. You could, I mean, it was just, you know, and all these ex football players. That was another thing. Cottage was more like the, we had some athletes that were still playing, but most of us, our ambition outweighed our talent, maybe. Uh, so we weren't playing, you know, maybe intramural, but not intercollegiate anymore. Uh, that was cap and gown next door. Uh, but we had the snow football game. It was awesome because I didn't get this as a kid growing up in South Carolina. But I had the idea with a couple of my friends from Georgia and uh, Tennessee. I said, here's what we're going to do. So everybody had, you know, everybody's wearing all kinds of similar clothing. their one winter jacket or whatnot. So when we're on defense, we all, you know, we all wearing the same thing. And, you know, was, everybody kind of looked alike, couldn't tell who was on your team. When we're on offense, we took the jackets off and everybody put on blaze orange. And then we'd score like in two plays. And then we could go back and put on the, <laughs> we reverse it back. We crushed those guys. It was pure strategy. It had nothing to do with our skill. So that was, be careful when you ask a Southerner to play snow football, because if you've ever been hunting, we, we do have one uniform that's unique to the South. <laughs> Oh man, this is too good. Blaze orange. Yeah, I uh, in preparing for this episode, I was doing some googling, and if if you're bored and listening to this episode and want to like learn more about eating clubs, PrincetonEatingClubs.org. Man, this is like, I think this is the thing that like, it's just interesting. You talk about uh, your dad saying like. Uh, no, no one, everyone here is your friend unless you consent to them not to be. The same, I, I feel like the same is true. Like everything in life to me is inherently interesting unless you consent for it not to be, unless you're just like ambivalent. And like uh, this eating club situation is just, it, you, these houses are so unique. I was looking at the cap and gown club, Herman Height from 1929. Whenever I enter this club, I feel happy inside. Like just, uh, Really interesting. I tell you, so you know that's that's um you, you hit that quote itself actually um, strikes a chord because yeah, anywhere you go you want a community right and when you're at a place like Princeton I mean it's it's you got a lot of people that are type A there's no doubt right I mean people that are these are the best of the best and um yeah it's you want to have like little enclaves within that not to be elitist or whatnot but just you're trying to find your people. And it takes a while to find your people in a place like that. It took me until probably sophomore year, honestly. Um, but, you know, I was on the football team for a couple of years. And then I went and played rugby after that because maybe it was safer. I don't know. Uh, but <laughs> we, um, those guys, every, every member of that football team, I could call them today. And I haven't talked to some of those guys in 10 years. We, we could talk for two hours. People that are in that eating club may be a little bit different, but, um, you know, a lot more people in that. There are, you know, several hundred in there. but. Um, same way. And so you really, it, everything's really about building a community. So no matter, you know, marrying the stationability to learn with community and just connection. And I mean, look, any, it doesn't matter if you're an eating club or if you're in a rotary or whatever it is, connect, right. Connection, being community coming out of this pandemic. I mean, that's our biggest problem is, you know, a friend tell me one time, he said, you know, there's no, there's no problem in this world, whether it be, you know, drug addiction, people getting a divorce, jobs, work, whatever it is, all human problems, they really come from a lack of connection. All of our problems, lack of connection. If you think about it, 
there's if, if someone could connect with somebody else that's hurting or or whatever you just you can show them another way and maybe that's me because i have a fear of like failure or i have a fear fear of of not connecting or fear of you know whatever it is just a general anxiety about life I, I know when i connect with people that's home to me right i feel like i'm home when i'm talking to somebody and i'm in a good conversation that's not like you know preconceived or, or you know like this i didn't know what to expect when i came in here but i knew i was going to see you so it's like i'll be fine <laughs> to get nervous about it yeah well what a way to end like uh because you know i think I would certainly echo that sentiment. I could I could share reasons why, but in the interest of time, I'll just say that same as I've had the privilege and fortune of working for a company that's fully remote. So amazing experience. Do do fun work, um, challenging startup, all the things. Um, I want to hear more about that too. Yeah. Um, well, for the next time episode or otherwise, but. One of the reasons I'm here at this office that I mentioned at Ricks is like there is a need to be to connect. And as much as we as lawyers can um, celebrate, which I, I can I can both celebrate and mourn in some respects, celebrate the notion of flexibility and being able to work wherever and having that um, there the equal and opposite reaction to that is just going into like a hole and being um and so I think that's like the tension that we're all sort of navigating and we're all sort of in it in a different way, depending on our profession. Um, but, uh, so I'm grateful for this. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. I want to do it again. We'll do it again. We'll do we'll, we'll pick some I got more, more to around. say. I've got so much to say. Okay. <laughs> uh, we'll end it here and leave, leave it, leave it for another day. Um, but thank you for taking time and, giving us a little window in Princeton, long snapping, uh, yeah. how to parade an official respectfully, um, all the things. Hey man, it's good to connect with you. We need to recognize that this is possible because of the hard work and support of the well-run media team. They make this easy. And speaking of easy, big thanks to Huga Coworking for access to their studio. And of course, the lawyers who agree to take time out of their busy, busy schedules to be here even though we're sure they have better things to do. So thanks for saying yes.